We are in Acts chapter 13. Turn there. Before we get started, I I did want to make a little bit of a correction from last week. I said that I was making the point that Paul is not a perfect man because he rebuked a man, prophesied over him, and the man became blind, as he said he would. And I was saying he wasn't doing that. Like, Paul didn't do that. He wasn't annoyed at the guy and, and struck him blind. He prophesied over him, and God made him blind. My point that I was making is that Paul was not a perfect man, and I said that he was, he hit the high priest. He, later on, he strikes the high priest. And so, uh, actually, Jaslyn, she's not here tonight, but thank you for uh, Jaslyn. She uh, had the courage to call me the next day, or she texted me the next day, hey, it's kind of bugging me, I'm not trying to nitpick, but like, Paul didn't hit the high priest. And she's right. He did not hit the high priest. The high priest said that he should get smacked in the mouth, and Paul rebuked him and called him uh, a name. And people were like, you're going to talk to the high priest like that? So the point stands that he's not perfect. He, he was acting rashly in that moment, but it is a slight correction that I said that Paul hit the man. He did not do so. He uh, insulted him. So I'm sorry for, leave it to me, the week that I'm talking about false prophets, I teach something that the Bible doesn't actually teach. So I uh, wanted to make that little correction. Uh, I'm sorry for that, but we can get into chapter 13 now. Assuming everybody doesn't want to leave. If you want to leave, <laughs> I might make another mistake. It happens. We're in verse 13, and there's an interesting shift here in verse 13. Last week I talked about the shift of turning from following mostly Peter to, to really following Paul into his uh, missionary trips. And now we're going to see another shift within that, that up to this point, it's been Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas's people and Saul was there. And now in this verse, last week, we went all the way through the island of Cyprus. And in that, on that island, Paul like moved into a leadership role. So now what we're going to start to see is instead of Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Paul, it's going to be Paul and Barnabas here in verse 13 is Paul and his party. He, something shifted where Paul just started acting like a leader. He took the reins and he became like the main guy. So the language sort of reflects that shift and that change. Now we we name Paul taking that leadership role. So we see that in verse 13, it says, now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John, uh, this is Mark, John Mark, uh, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when he departed from Perga, they came to Antioch. Now, this is a different Antioch. Again, if you have your Bibles with you, you probably have a map in the back of Paul's missionary journeys. This is his first missionary journey, and this is a different Antioch. He started in Antioch. He went to Cyprus, he went to Perga, and then now he is in a different Antioch. Pastor Dave did a series uh, a couple years back called From Antioch to Antioch. And if you look at your map, you're going to see an Antioch over there in Syria, and now he's in Phygia in the Antioch there. So don't get confused there. And if you, again, if you want to flip back and take a look at that map as we go on, 
that uh, it's always helped me a little bit. So continuing in verse 14, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. This is sort of how they do it, how they've done the missions trips throughout Acts. They're going to continue to do this. They go to a new city, they go to the synagogue, they preach in the synagogue, and then from there, their ministry spreads and transforms people. Verse 15, And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. So this opportunity arises, and I was thinking about it and praying for you guys today and this week while I was thinking about it. And the we were just talking about how the holidays are starting to come up. They're going to be here anytime. And this has happened to me a couple times at Annie's family or even at my own family where you're all getting ready to eat. And then they're like, hey, like, do you mind praying to like, and it's the most weird when the people aren't saved, but they ask you to pray for the meal. And all of a sudden you're just like, why me? Like, what? It's not my house. Like, but that'll happen. You might be put in these situations where you just all of a sudden have an opportunity and you need to be ready to rise to that occasion. Don't be like, oh, no, it's like, that's weird. That might feel awkward. You know, don't, don't let your awkwardness get in the way. Don't let your sort of social things like, oh, it's your house. You should pray. It's like, well, they're asking you to pray because you're whatever, the most spiritual person they know, maybe. Wh whatever the reason is, they are giving you an opportunity to pray and sort of be a mouthpiece for God in that situation. So rise to that occasion, and Paul sure does here. Say on, they say to him, and then Paul stood up. He rises to that occasion, and he says, <laughs> and motioning with his hand, he says, men of Israel and you who fear God. This men of Israel and those who fear God, he's, talking, he's saying, you Jews and proselytes is what the, the Bible talks about, the, the Jews and proselytes. A proselyte is somebody who is not Jewish by descent, but they are a Gentile and they've come to the Jewish faith. So he's speaking to them in that way. And I don't know, it's interesting that he records that he's motioning with his hand. It might be a, a thing because what would happen often is there's the reading of the scripture, right? And then they would sit down and talk. Sometimes there would be different talks over here, different talks over here. And when they give him this opportunity, he may have stood up and motioning with his hands to kind of get everyone's attention. Like, all right, they're giving me the, the stage. Here we go. And so he might be doing that. He might be motioning as in like everybody. I'm talking to everybody. I'm not just talking to the Jews. I'm not just talking to the proselytes. I'm talking to everybody here. So he's motioning with the, his hands and he says, all you who fear God, listen. And from here on out is his sermon. It's, it's a chunk of scripture here. And this sermon that he preaches is, is a really interesting one. It's a really beautiful one. And also it can get real complicated real quick. The more you dig into it, he tackles some, some issues. And what I want is for you guys to, if something's like, what is going on? Like, feel free to ask questions. We can have some discussion. We can even talk about it after or at the coffee house thing on Friday. But if some topics come up here, don't feel afraid to, to ask the questions that pop into your mind. So 
What I normally like to do is to just read through the sermon because I want you guys to, to hear it as it was recorded at least, and hopefully as it was spoken. And so it's verses 17 through 41. So if you guys want to help me read this, if, does, is anyone in love with reading out loud? Amy? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Do, does anyone else want to help out in reading? To 41? Yep, let's do that. Okay. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, According to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. The people in Jerusalem and their leaders did not recognize Jesus as one of the prophets had spoken about. Instead, they condemned him. And in doing this, they fulfilled the prophet's words that are read every Sabbath. They found no legal reason to execute him, but they asked Pilate to kill him anyway. When they had done all that the prophecies said about him, they took him down from the cross and placed him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And over a period of many days... He appeared to those who had gone with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to the people of Israel. And now we are here to bring you this good news. The promise was made to our ancestors, and God has now fulfilled it for us, their descendants, by raising Jesus. This is what the second psalm says about Jesus. You are my son. Today I have become your father. For God had promised to raise him from the dead, not leaving him to rot in a grave. He said, I will give you the sacred blessings I have promised to David. Another psalm explains it more fully. You will not allow your holy one to rot in the grave. This is not a reference to David, for after David had done all the will, the will of God in his own generation, he died and was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. No, it was a reference to someone else, someone whom God raised and the whole body did not decay. Brothers, listen. We are not here to proclaim that through this man Jesus there is for, that through this man Jesus there is forgiveness of your sins. Everyone who believes in him is declared right with God, something the law of Moses could never do. Be careful, do not let the prophet's words apply to you. For they said, Look, you mockers, be amazed and die, for I am doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe, even if someone told you about it. That's the sermon. So, much like a lot of the sermons in the New Testament, it's sort of a history lesson in the beginning, and, and a lot of this is to, okay, you know, it gets them, yep, okay, yep, I know this, and he ties it right into Scripture, and then 
every New Testament sermon includes Jesus dying, rising from death, and then tying scripture in and saying, look, like this is who we've been waiting for. This is the guy. Jesus is the Christ. And after the short history lesson, he jumps into some theology there. He says in verse 23, for this man's seed according to the promise. And that according to the promise is a big deal. It's a big topic. And it's, it's honestly the same topic that's brought up in Romans 9. That's why I say the more you start digging into this sermon, the more complicated it can get because he, he really unpacks some of these topics in Romans. This is just a sermon sort of on some of these topics. And as you start looking at it, you'll start seeing like, oh, this is like basically the same thing that he's saying in Romans. And the, the topic of the promises, that is what Romans 9 is focusing on. Hey, this is how the promises of God have gone through the generations. That's, what, that's, that's the theme of Romans 9, and it's the same theme in this sermon after he gets through some of the historical stuff. And he says, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus, after John had first preached before his coming of the baptism. I'm going to skip down to verse 26. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you, the word of this salvation has been sent. The promise, and actually, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read a quick verse in Romans chapter 9, verse 4. Actually, verse 3 and 4. It says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Big statement. The guy who's writing Romans, he's the guy who's preaching in Acts. And what he's saying in verse 3 here is, I would go to hell if that meant all of my Jewish countrymen, all everybody in my country could go to heaven. I would totally do that. That is a big statement. I would be damned if I knew that they could go to heaven. And what he gets to later is, Jesus already did that. <laughs> so my dying would do nothing because I am not righteous, but Jesus was. And, and he, he gets there in Romans. But what he's saying here is that he has a heart for his countrymen. He says, uh, My countrymen, according to the flesh, who are the Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving, giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. I read that verse because, again, he's saying the very same thing here. He says, the according to the promise, he's saying that this promise came. Uh, Jesus was sent because there was a promise that Jesus would be sent. In verse 26, he says that salvation has been sent to who? He says to you, to the people he's, he's talking to, to the Jews and the proselytes. He's saying to you, the promise of salvation or the, the, the promise of the Savior has come and the word of this salvation has been sent to you. Jesus said over and over and over again that he came to the Jews. I came to the Israelites. That's who he came to. And when he sent out his the, the, the 70, he said, don't go to the Samaritans, don't go to the Gentile nations, go to the Jews. That's what we're here for. That's who needs to hear this word first. And after the Jews reject Jesus, they kill him. He rises from death and he spends 40 days with them. And then he says, right before he ascends into heaven, in front of all of them, he says, 
Go ye therefore into all the nations. Go into all the world and make disciples. So he comes to the Jews. They reject him. And because of that rejection, there is a turning to the entire rest of the world. And I want to say that God's truth has always been for all nations throughout the Old Testament, throughout the, the law and the prophets. There is always this weird and you'll read it sometimes like wait i thought it was just for the jews over and over and over again god says i'm doing this so the nations will know so the world will know that i am good that i am god that i am the the maker the creator and the savior of the world he says that over and over and over again so god's truth has always been for all nations but up to the time of jesus God's word came to and through the Jews. God would speak to the Jews, and they were supposed to disperse it to the nations. They did a horrible job of it. In all honesty, historically, they didn't do a great job, and thus we have Jesus. And as he continues here, we skip down to verse 28. And though they found no cause for death in him, right? Actually, verse 28 through verse 32, I'm just going to save a little time here so we can, uh, again, for time's sake, this is just straight up gospel. He just says, here's what it is. Jesus was sinless. Nobody had anything against him, but they hated him, so they killed him. But he rose from death. And, And so, again, every New Testament sermon has this part in it. And the gospel is preached right there. Verse 33 through 35, these verses are him quoting Old Testament stuff. This is him quoting mostly Psalms. And these are verses that every person who is in the Jewish faith, whether they were Jewish by descent or not, every Jewish person would have heard these verses and known these chapters are clearly about their prophecies of the coming Christ. They would have known them, and the verses he uses are very specific. You are my son, today I have begotten you. I will give you the sure mercies of David, and then also the, you will not allow your holy one, right? That's the, that's the Christ, to see corruption. These are the whole chapters. They're awesome. If you guys want to read those chapters, read those passages, they're very clearly, and the Jews of that time would have known this is prophesying about the coming of the Christ. So he's using these key verses, these key chapters. He's only using one verse from them, key verses, but they're going to be like, oh, okay, he's clearly quoting these chapters and passages about the Christ. And he's doing that to say Christ fulfilled these things and here's how he did it. In verse verses 36 and 37, he says, for David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep. Of course, as as I've said before, this is the New Testament language of when a Christian dies. He fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. As Johnny's Bible said, he was rotting in a grave. Verse 37, but he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Jesus did not begin decay. Decay doesn't start until the fourth day. And he did not see decay. No decay happened to Jesus. This is significant because it's a fulfillment of prophecy. And even, this isn't in my notes, but even with Lazarus. Lazarus was dead four days. And Jesus says, open the tomb. And and the King James says, 
he stinketh. <laughs> like, he, he will, he's, it's going to stink in there because he's been dead four days. The decay has already started and, and he has seen corruption. So the point here is we know where David is buried. We know where his bones are. We know he's rotting. To this day, no one knows where Jesus' tomb is because none of his followers cared to go to an empty tomb because they were worshiping a living person. They were, they were worshiping Jesus who rose from death and ascended into heaven. Why do we need to care about where his tomb was? It's empty. Maybe somebody else used it. Like, that's, that's something that doesn't matter. But in their time, they're saying, we know exactly where David is buried. Therefore, he's not writing about himself in, these, in this prophecy about the coming of the Christ because he saw corruption. He's totally rotting. <coughs> Furthermore, that uh, proper or that psalm that he quotes about, I will give you the sure mercies of David. He's saying the promises I gave to David about David be, having a king that rules forever, like that, those promises are applied to the Christ. All of these promises that were given to David apply to the Christ, including this thing about not seeing corruption. Also, these two verses sound a lot like Peter's sermons. There's one in chapter two, yeah. and there is another in a different chapter, but he's saying the same thing, using the same ideas, some maybe the same verses, but like the point is thought, the same train of thought. It's yeah. it's a it's a awesome way to do it because it's like, well, was David writing about himself? And he's like, nope, he wasn't. And so that is what he's saying there. Verse 38, he says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Who is being offered the forgiveness of sins in this verse? Everyone who's there. Everyone who he's talking to. Through this man is preached to you for the forgiveness of sins. To you it's being preached, forgiveness of sins. Through Jesus, you can have your sins forgiven. And the reason I'm belaboring this point is because some will say, Jesus didn't die for everybody. He only died for people who get eventually get saved. The Bible says something different. The Bible says, he died for you. And that's how we should preach. That's how we should teach that Jesus died for your sins. And when you believe in him, your sins are covered by that sacrifice. Verse 39, And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Again, Paul really unpacks this stuff in Romans. And you can tell that like through these sermons, yeah, I had a question, but maybe I should save it for it. No, you're good. Go for it. It was just about that verse. Uh, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And I'm not saying I disagree with you. Um, in fact, I, I fully agree with you. But I, I the thing that, that uh, concerns me is when people read verses like that and they make this statement, he says, let it be known to you. Therefore, brothers, and the term being that brothers are believers. Um, would you say then that's why they have that statement? Is like, well, this is to those who believe. He died for everyone who believes in him because he's speaking to the brothers, the Christian. But they're not believers yet. Okay. He's preaching to 
the Jews and the why does he call proselytes? Because it's he's also a Jew. The proselytes uh, and the Jews. Okay. Yeah, that's the audience. Okay. Yeah, so he's saying that's the language you would use. Just like in Romans nine, he was saying, "My brother and my countrymen, according to the flesh." That that whole thing, because they are his brothers. They are Jews, like he is. So that's just the language oh, okay. that they used. Verse thirty nine. It says. And by him, everyone who believes is justified by all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And again, I, I imagine he, through a lot of the sermons that he preached, Paul is just kind of like putting together a lot of the stuff that he eventually really expounds on. Romans 8 verses 3 and 4, it says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, this is our flesh, the law is good, but we failed in it. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Back to Acts 13. That's what he's saying here, that the law is you, you can't fulfill you can't be justified by certain things by the law. And it covers a lot of things, but even back then, it's like, well, what about this? And then they would make some new rule. That wasn't from God, but they were trying to make ways to feel justified for things that the law didn't really cover. And what he's saying is, through the forgiveness of sins, through Christ, those things are covered as well. Everything that the law covered is covered, or all everything that the law talks about is covered, all the things that the law doesn't talk about, is covered by the blood of Jesus. Then in verse 40, this is a beware verse. Beware therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. He says, beware, don't let this curse that happens in Habakkuk, he's quoting Habakkuk here, don't let this curse apply to you. Prevent it. It's an interesting thing because it's it's this curse on those who don't believe, but he's saying you can prevent, like, don't beware. Therefore, lest what was spoken by the prophets come upon you. If you're not being careful, if you're not being aware, then this will apply to you. If you reject it, then this will apply to you. But if you have faith in Jesus, then you are outside of that curse that God gave Habakkuk. Prevent this curse from coming upon you. Continuing now, after the sermon, it says in verse 42, So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath, like, please come back, be the guest speaker again. We want to hear more of this stuff. Verse 43, now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. We are in the age of grace. When Jesus died and rose again, ascended into heaven, that moved us 
from the age of the law and the prophets into the age of grace. And what it's saying here is many of the people, many of the Jews and pros devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. So they heard the word of God that Paul preached and they came to him like, yeah, like continue preaching grace, continue in the grace of God, continue to do good things here in our city. Verse 44, this is amazing. On the next Sabbath, so this is a week later, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Praise the Lord. Everybody, that would be like us doing our Easter sunrise service at that park in Long Beach and half the city showing up. Like, what are they all doing here? They're, they're here to hear the word of God. That is incredible. We are now no longer talking about just the Jews and the proselytes. The whole city's like, what's going on? Like, we heard something cool is going on. I want to hear this, this sermon. So this whole city shows up to hear the word of God. Verse 45. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. No, <laughs> they were filled with envy. And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Jesus said that the religious leaders of that time, they loved praise. And they loved the praise of men, they loved the high seats, and they, they loved importance, feeling important. And I don't know if it was just the culture within the religion that was happening, but that too much importance was given to the religious leaders within Judaism. And they, they were addicted to it. They loved it. In Jesus' time, because they saw Jesus getting a following and growing in importance, they murdered him. And now, in a different city, but the same culture within Judaism, the, the religious leaders, they see Paul and Barnabas getting what they would consider their attention. Like, people should be coming to us. Why are they going to these new guys? And they're jealous. They're moved to jealousy because they're addicted to power. Sorry, quick question. Is the Jews there, is that cultural Jews or that, are they not believers? That's a good question. This would be most likely the Jews would basically be like the religious Jews. Because, and that's a good question and I, I don't have it in my notes, so thank you. But earlier it says that the Jews, many of the Jews and proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. But now it's saying the okay. Jews, this would be the, the Jews in opposition to Christianity. So those who followed ha have now moved from the relig religion of Judaism into Christianity. This is now the Jews in opposition to the Christians. Does that make sense? I think so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they are the ones who become jealous because they see the, the multitudes, right? That's exactly what it says. They see the multitudes and they were filled with envy. And so they begin to contradict, they begin to oppose, and they begin to, to speak against Paul and Paul's message. They're blas That's what blasphemy means. They're speaking against Paul, his words, his message, which ultimately means he's speaking against the Christ, Jesus. Verse 46, then Paul and Barnabas grew bold. Amen. May we grow bold when opposition comes. 
may we rise to the occasion and stand firm in the face of opposition. Instead of shying away, like I was talking about before, when that opportunity comes, don't be sort of culturally like, oh, like, I don't want to step on any toes. Oh, it's your house. No, you pray. When that opportunity comes, stand firm and don't shy away. Rise to the occasion. And when you do that, if opposition comes, hey, I didn't like what you said. You said in Jesus' name or, or you know, you're preaching to somebody and opposition comes, take that to be a good sign. Rejoice over that. And don't shy away like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, to, to hurt your feet. Stand firm in the truth. Stand firm in the word of God. Continuing in verse 46, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. To who first? As Paul says over and over and over and over again in the book of Romans, again, there's a lot of parallels to the Jew first, he says, and also to the Gentile. That's who he's talking to here. It was necessary that we come and we speak to you first. This shed some light on why they did ministry the way they did ministry. As I said, that was the way that Jesus did it. And it's also the way that his followers are doing it. They go into a new city. They find whatever sort of community of Jews there is. And they speak to them first. And then from there, then they go and speak to the Gentiles. And Paul's mission from the Holy Spirit is specifically to Gentiles, but they still go into the cities and they speak first to the Jews. Because, again, that's how it worked. That's how God did it. <laughs> speak to the Jews first, and when they reject it, then speak to the Gentiles. We don't know why that's the way God did it, that's, but that's the way he did it. And as Paul said in his sermon, because God chose them. He decided, and that's why he did it. Verse 46, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you rejected it, because of rejection of God and his precepts, and this is a point he makes over and over and over again in Romans, because this is why, he, if you read Romans, I'm not trying to belabor the point, but Romans is exactly about this this tension between Jew and Gentile. And that's why the whole book is talking about to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And he speaks a lot to the Gentiles, but then he turns and he speaks a lot to the Jews. He's speaking to a community of Christians who are still feeling this tension between Jew and Gentile. And he's trying to figure that out, unravel it. And then after he gets through all of that in chapter 12 of Romans, then he moves from, okay, now that we're done with the tension, let's all of you act like Christians and be united in that way. And that's what chapter 12, there's a little bit of a turn there. He stops talking so much about history and theology. He ties it up and says, now basically start getting along. This is how you're supposed to treat one another. But the point here that he's making is because of the rejection of God and his precepts, salvation is offered to the world. In order to, again, this is all Romans 9 through 11 stuff, okay? The, the reason that it's offered to the Gentiles, offered to the world, is to draw the Jews in to himself again. God is trying to draw all, all people into right relationship with himself. He 
spoke to the Jews. They rejected him. He turns to the world to bring the world in, but also to try and bring the Jews in because of the promises that he made with the Jews. Again, we don't know why God chose Abraham, but he did. He chose Abraham, and Paul walks through that in Romans 9, and he starts talking about all the promises that God made to the Jews. And so when you start thinking, well, you know, why are the Jews so important? Because he made promises, and God does not break promises. So he made promises to Abraham that his seed would you know, change the world and that it would be crazy numerous and it would be a godly nation. He fulfilled that promise. He made promises to David that a king would come and the name of David would live on forever. He fulfilled those promises and that is really important to God. When God makes a promise, he always fulfills that promise. He will not break it. He will not break a promise. And again, this is all Romans 9 through 11 stuff. But it also goes all the way back to Deuteronomy, where in Deuteronomy 32, God says that I will provoke you to jealousy. The Israelites are doing stupid things. So God says, I'm going to turn to the nations. I'm going to bless them so that you will be jealous and come back to me. And this is a cycle that goes that the Israelites go through throughout the whole Bible and throughout history, where they reject God and God says, okay, I'm going to go over here. And he draws people in from that nation, and then the Jews come, and he draws them back. Where that a question? Where are Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy 32. Paul actually quotes it in Romans. I don't remember which verse. I think that's in Romans 11. Um, this is also the parable of, I won't go there, but if you want to check it out, Matthew 22, the parable of the wedding feast. Mm. A king is throwing his son a massive wedding. And he's excited about it. So he sends his servants to invite all of their best friends, and they don't want to come. They made really poor excuses. I've got to plow my land that day. I've got to wash my hair that day. Like, just really, really poor excuses. And uh, the, the second one I made up. But he is frustrated, so he sends more servants. And at that point, people don't only reject the invitation, but they kill the servants and take what they have. And so the king is infuriated. He sends armed people to these people who killed his servants, and he, he kills them. And then he tells his servants, this party's happening. Like, the food is ready. The DJ's here. Like, we're going to have a really kicking party. So go out into the streets and invite everybody. Everybody you see, give them an invitation and tell them to show up to the party. Tell them to show up to the wedding because the people I invited, they didn't want to come, but we're still going to have a crazy awesome party. So he invites people from all over and they come in to have the party. This is a parable told by Jesus to the Jews to say, you have rejected me and my people and even killed my prophets. Therefore, I will go into the streets and I will invite everybody because we're going to still have a crazy awesome party. And that's what we're looking forward to. When we get to heaven, we're going to have a crazy, awesome kicking party, and it's going to be a, a great wedding feast, the Bible says. But it's interesting that God is saying to them over and over and over again, it's because you rejected me. And I'm going to invite everybody, but the point is to get everybody to the party. Like, that's what God, that's what God's heart actually is, to, to bring in the people who... Uh, are off the street and also bring the, those who are invited. He wants them to still come. 
And that's what Romans unpacks a little bit more. But here in verse 46, as we continue, since you rejected it, verse 46, and judge yourself unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. This is, interestingly enough, another chapter about, very clearly, about Jesus, about the Christ. It's, uh, he's quoting Isaiah 42 here. And this prophecy about the Christ, that he's going to be a light to the Gentiles and be for salvation to the ends of the earth, it's interesting that Paul says, the Lord has commanded us. Because, right, this is basically the Great Commission. And that's what Jesus did. But Jesus came to the Jews first. But right before he ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples, go ye therefore into all the earth. So that ministry of the Christ has been passed on to Christians. And that's what Paul is saying here. That the ministry that is spoken of in Isaiah 42, that's what we're doing. We are continuing to fulfill prophecy here. That God has empowered us to bring you the, the good news of salvation and that pertains to you. I have written here, uh, light is being shined to the Gentiles through us, through his people, through his apostles, through his sent ones. The light to the nations is shining through us. Again, God chooses to use us to fulfill his promises, and that's exactly what Paul is getting at here as well. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, so again, this is not just talking about the proselytes anymore. It's not just talking about people who are not of Jewish descent who are still Jews. This is the, the, almost the whole city is there. And so he's when it's talking about the, the Gentiles here, it's not just talking about proselytes. And what does it say? That when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. Again, praise God. Hallelujah. They are loving what Paul and Barnabas have to say. And they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Okay. Let's unpack that. This can get really hairy really quick. I'll put that out there. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I will say this is a hotly debated verse and has been for about 500 years. A lot of people say a lot of different things and they point to this verse to say them. And what I want to preface this with is do not let this verse divide true and pure Christian fellowship. If it does divide Christian fellowship, don't let it be because you're angry or because you're offended. Uh, let it be because either you correct the person and it doesn't go well and they leave or that whatever. I just I, I don't want to like cause more division than there already is in the body of Christ. But I, I do think it's important to to pause here because it's it's a little bit the language that he uses is is interesting as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed what is meant by that 
And I'll start by saying I'm not going to unpack everybody's ideas and everybody's theories, but uh, the way that it's sort of translated and, and said here is, and what typically is taught, is that God appointed people to eternal life, and that's why they believed. I do not think that that's what this verse is saying. I do not think that. And that's what it's pointed to a lot. And people say, see, those who were appointed believed. And I just don't see any evidence for that. And the reason is, if I can get a little bit nerdy here, uh, the word in the Greek here means to set, determine, appoint, or to devote. 1 Corinthians 16 says that a group of people devoted themselves to the ministry. Same word. It's translated differently. But it's the same word in the Greek. So the way that I see this is that the people in Acts 13 here are devoted to the Scripture. They are devoted to truth. They are devoted to eternal life. And those are the ones who believed. Some will say that that's too simple of an interpretation. My response would be that the Scripture is meant to be simple. <laughs> There's an old precept, I guess you could call it, called Occam's Razor. If you any of you have ever taken a logic class in college, you've probably heard of Occam's Razor. And if you don't remember, you can check your notes. But uh, Occam was actually a very educated Christian man, and he was he loved logic. So he came up with these different ideas. And Occam's Razor is still taught in any college that teaches logic today. And it, what Occam's Razor is, it's the most obvious or most simple answer is usually the right one. It's super simple. The, the most simple answer is probably the right one. If I could use an example is like, say we wake up one day and there's a giant hole in our fence. And there's two options. Either a rhinoceros ran through and busted up our entire fence or a car jumped the curb and broke through the fence. Probably not the rhinoceros. Someone's like, it's probably a rhinoceros. Like, well, it's more likely that it was a car. So it's probably the car. And that's sort of a, a, a very simple one, but that's the idea. And I, I've actually applied this in a lot of ways in my life. But for instance, when I lose my keys, a lot of the time, I've seen my mom do this. She would lose her keys and she'd start flipping over couches. She's going out into the gutter, looking in the gutter. And it's like, no, the most simple answer is probably that you put it on your shelf or in your, your pants pocket. You know, it's like there's a, a more simple answer than you, you dropped it in the sewer drain. It's like, mm, it's probably more simple than that. But here I'm bringing it up because it's a simple answer when you look at the simple meanings of the word. Nowhere in the context does it say that they were appointed by God to eternal life and that's why they believed. It just says they were appointed or maybe devoted to eternal life. And so when they heard the truth and they were tested it with scripture, they're like, oh, we believe. <laughs> because they're devoted to truth, they're not devoted to their religion, which is why the Jews would not turn to Christianity because they were devoted to their religion. Yeah, Aaron. That, I mean, that's like exactly what I was about to ask. Would you say it's almost like the wedding party, like the parable is like, when you think about that parable, he did invite, he did like, he, he had these chosen people and then he's like, this is for everybody because you guys aren't receiving it. Yeah. This is for everyone. Everyone's invited. And so then to say like, 
that that's what that means. It's just the idea is that like they were devoted towards God, they were devoted towards seeking him, you know, they that same idea is like based off of the context, it seems almost as though they had, it, it's like, he's saying like those who were devoted in the sense of like the Gentiles are receiving this, they're listening. They're actually devoted to me. Whereas right. you guys are not listening. Yeah. So. Go ahead. Is it all right to throw out an idea? Sure. It's really interesting because lately I've been kind of getting into this. Uh, so I heard this illustration. Of, so in that passage that Aaron mentioned, the end is for many are called, but few are chosen. Yes. And that's very interesting because in the context of what Jesus is saying is what we're talking about is there's it's offered but then there's few that are these special choice people and the other side of that is jesus when he was picking the disciples he called all of them to come out and they all came they all followed him but then uh judas pieces out thanks r2 uh so <laughs> He's, he, he calls them, right? And then at the end, when Judas is rejected, Jesus answered him, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil. Now he met Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So he's mm -hmm. like, I called you guys, but you didn't choose me, Judas. <laughs> and like being like... It's really interesting because he actually called these special people, but the choice ones, the special ones, were the ones who actually gave back. And Judas was like, you know, I'm going to betray you. Who cares? Judas is the guy who showed up to the wedding like, hey, you know, I'm going to wear whatever garment I want. But the thing is, like with the wedding garments and the king, the king provides the garments. If you're going to the king's son's wedding, showing up in like a hoodie and vans when the king already sent you a tuxedo to wear it's a slap in the face so yeah he called this guy gave him the wedding garment but the guy said i'm i'm just gonna come in on my own i'm here for the food i'm here for the food i'm gonna i'm gonna do me i'm gonna you know all roads lead to god man i'm, I'm gonna go my way uh god rejects that and then that person goes and is cast to weeping and gnashing of teeth and stuff. So yeah. my point is, there's a person that is chosen, but is completely rejected. Same way with a wedding proposal is, did I choose Nina? Absolutely. But she had to say yes and choose me as well. There's a partnership of God choosing us and we choose God. Hmm. And that's kind of like something I've been looking into recently, <laughs> especially with this passage where it's like, in my in my translation, which the, you know, it's good you're reading the root. It says, "And all who are chosen for eternal life became believers." And if it's like these people that are devoted, it's like Nina's devoted to me. She chose me, and I was like, "Hey, will, will you marry me?" And she's like, "Sure, yeah." But then the wedding is when she was actually devoted to me, and I think that's like that's when the choosing goes both ways. Yeah. So that's kind of, that's my thought on it recently, yeah. but it's like, I, it's really cool to see that even in here. It's like, man, they were talking to everybody in the whole town, <laughs> but the people who actually said, you know what? 
I hear what you're saying. Like, I'm going to devote myself to you. They are the chosen. Yeah. And that's kind of, I don't know. I mean, that whole thing with Judas where he's like, did I not call you? Didn't I not choose you, Judas, yet you reject me? And he is literally the guy that shows up in the garment that was already specially selected. But he chose to just do it on his own. Hmm. And you're not actually being covered and in a relationship thing. Or anyway, that's no, like that's good. kind of my two cents on the thing. But it's like my conclusion is it's both. God chooses us; we choose Him. Yeah, and it, I think it can actually coincide very easily if you look at like an actual marriage. It's both ways. You don't just go around saying like, uh, "I'm going to marry you." <laughs> uh, whoa, that's a little weird. No one does that, and I don't think God does that too. You're coming to heaven. Nope, that doesn't work. Well, and that. It, again, we're talking a lot about Romans. Romans 10, he also says that, that God calls out to you through a preacher, right? And he goes, he yeah. walks all the way through it. And then it ends with, and we call out. Actually, he, he goes backwards. But they call out to God, right? Because whoever calls out on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the promise in there in Romans 10. Yeah. And he walks it backwards to, well, God called them by sending a preacher. So God calls them, and when we call back and we call in the name of the Lord, then we're saved. Yeah. Can you put another wrench in it? <laughs> yes. Sometimes more division against a different line of thought. Yeah. So um, it pertains to this too, uh, just for people to look into it. Take a look at uh, King Saul. When he, when he was uh, younger, he was chosen by God to be king, and he was called a righteous man early on. And then he turned away and mm. could not find re- repentance. Yeah, so that's that's interesting too because a, in that's a whole other dynamic. It's totally different. I'm getting a little bit off in the weeds, but in that story, God actually sends a distressing spirit to Saul, right? And in my study, I see that as just what we're talking about here, trying to draw him back. Yeah. The reason I say that is because the only thing that soothed him was David's worship music. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And that thing that should have drawn him out of his distressing spirit, he gets angry at God, angry at David, and seeks to Throwing kill him. Spears at us. <laughs> right? So God is like, he's causing that discomfort, right? Here it's jealousy, there it's a distressing spirit. God causes these feelings to draw us back from our evilness and how we respond. Is a big deal. Getting back to Acts, the last thing I want to say on this is I want to compare the interesting thing that was said in verse 46, the difference between the Jews who are opposing him, right? They, what does it say? They judge themselves unworthy of everlasting life. They judge themselves unworthy of everlasting life. But here, the Gentiles, they are appointed to or, or devoted to eternal life. They're devoted to it, and the Jews who are opposing it, they are judging themselves unworthy. Mm. So there's an interesting dynamic that Luke is trying to include in the text that sometimes our second or our first language, but the language that is being translated into kind of gets us tied up in knots, and especially because a lot of theology and a lot of people have a lot of different ideas and and that gets thrown into how the bible is translated sometimes it's unfortunate but it's just how it is and that's why it's important to study and as i've said before there's going to be 
at least one week that we are going to sort of unpack how to do some deeper study so that we can look at some, something and be like, wow, this is difficult. What's actually being said here? And, and we're going to get into sort of how to unpack some of these deeper issues and, and deep, deeper study into the, the scriptures. So getting back to Acts in verse 49, he continues. And the, what I want to say is I want this verse to unify us. If you disagree with what I'm saying, or if you know somebody who disagrees with what I'm saying, let this unify you. Let this unify us all as Christians. It says, and the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. Let that be the unifying factor. Let's unify on what is solid in the Bible. There's plenty of things to agree on. Let's not focus on the tiny little things that we disagree on, but let's let's focus on the things that, that God wants us to focus on. Let's be unified, be of one mind, right? Be one body in Christ. Let's unify on spreading the word because that is the ministry of the Christ that we are supposed to carry out. That's what Paul just said. The ministry of the Christ, he's quoting 42, and he says, we are doing this. The people of God are supposed to unify in spreading the word. So this is a little bit off in the weeds, but it's unfortunately a massive topic that you're never going to be able to avoid. It's going to come up over and over and over again. Don't let it divide pure Christian fellowship. Rather, unify on what's actually important. Finishing out this chapter, it says, But the Jews stirred up the devoted and prominent women, and the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. So the word of the Lord is spreading throughout all the region, and then they're expelled from the region. But... They shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This shake the dust from their feet thing, uh, you're going to see this happen. Paul himself is going to do it a couple more times in the book of Acts. It is an interesting thing that if you're just reading the Bible straight through sometimes you're like hmm, interesting what's that mean and then you move on this is actually a teaching of jesus um, i'm going to turn to uh, matthew 10 if you want to follow me there matthew 10 verse 14 and whoever will not receive you okay so he's he's instructing his disciples on how to do this ministry that he's sending them out to do whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city shake off the dust from your feet assuredly i say to you it will be more tolerable for the land of sodom and gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city behold i send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves but beware of men for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. Which is exactly what Paul is going to continually face. You can also compare that to Mark chapter 6. It's the same thing, but there's some cool differences there. But my point is, this shaking the dust thing that you're going to see Paul do physically, he's like actually shaking the dust off his cloak, dusting off his feet. This is a teaching from Jesus which is cool because the, it shows that the apostles are still following how Jesus taught them to send out people. The, the way that Jesus created disciples, or yeah, took his disciples and created apostles, right? 
apostles means sent ones, the way he sent them out, the disciples are still following how Jesus did it as they send people out. Even down to, if they reject you, they don't want to hear you, they expel you from their region, shake the dust and move on to somebody who will receive it. Finally, that last verse in Acts 13, 52, says uh, that the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. When persecution comes, the disciples, all the time, it says they're filled with joy. They count it a joy that they were worthy enough to suffer for Jesus' name. That's how they see it. Sometimes we're going through a hard time or somebody's coming against us and we're like, yeah, wait, this sucks. Life's not comfortable. Because our culture says that that is God, comfort. But really, we need to, when we get discomfort for preaching the word of God, we need to be like, God, thank you for counting me worthy. Like, this is a good thing. It hurts. It sucks. But I know that you see it as golden. And when you are able to see things that way, just like the disciples, they're filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. When you receive persecution, when you count it a joy, the Holy Spirit wells up inside of us. And also, I will say from, from experience, the times that I have seen direct persecution for directly preaching the Word of God, I specifically I think of when we used to preach to the Mormons in Manti, Utah, when we would see a lot of opposition, those are the times where I was like, I would say things that I didn't even know I knew. And it would be like, later I would be processing with my Christian friends and be like, the Holy Spirit showed up and said this thing through me because I didn't know I knew that thing, but it totally stumped the elder. And like these weird things when you're like, all right, God, like, what do you have me to do? Anything you got, anything that comes against me, I'm going to count it a joy. The Holy Spirit shows up and does amazing things in your life. And that's what's happening in the disciples as they continue to Iconium, which we will get into next week.